This podcast is brought to you by Lannan Foundation and is available at podcast.lannan.org. I can't see you. <laughs> Hello, everybody. <laughs> I'm so excited to be here. Um, thank you to the Lannan Foundation. It's, uh, it's really a privilege to, uh, to be able to be here and to introduce and be in conversation with Ilan Pape, who I am so honored to introduce tonight. I want to first acknowledge that this is the Whitewater Place, a sacred site of the Tewa people. Um, I certainly feel it deeply here, um, like a settler on permanently occupied territory, it seems. And it's, of course, relevant to our evening. Um, I'm not a historian, but I did study history in college. And even though I ultimately went to law school, somehow uh, all Palestinians have to be historians of our own experience. That's the only way to resist the erasure that has and continues to be so central to the Israel project. And I think it's the same for all groups who are the vanquished, whose stories are written by the victors. I'm also closer to the field, of course, by the virtue of the fact that my father, Rashid Khalidi, is a well-known historian of the Middle East and Palestine, as are other members of my family. And this is all to say that Ilan Pape's name has been very familiar to me for a long time on the bookshelves in my home, uh, on my college reading lists, uh, coming up at the dinner table conversations. And although I apparently met Ilan as a kid, um, it's my first time certainly on stage with him and uh, meeting him in my conscious adulthood. So... For that reason, it's an especial honor to introduce him tonight. As a Palestinian, it's easy to say how critical Ilan's work has been. Palestinian historians before him, including my cousin Walid Khalidi, documented the wiping off the map of Palestine in 1948 that led to the establishment of Israel from the perspective of its Palestinian victims. Of course, Israel denied the stories and the evidence of hundreds of villages destroyed and three-quarters of a million Palestinians exiled from their lands and homes. And it continues to peddle the myth that their own leaders told them to leave. But when the Israeli archives released documents from that period um, in the 1980s, Very few Israelis had access, and even fewer did what Ilan has so courageously done. He unearthed for the rest of us the details of the planning and execution of the Nakba, what we call the catastrophe of the loss of our homeland. What was particularly critical about Ilan's work was not just the documentary evidence that he shared. It was also how he described it in historical as well as in legal terms. Ethnic cleansing. It's not a light word. It's not euphemistic. It doesn't ask a question. It answers one. It makes a judgment for us with absolute moral clarity. 
And Ilan, together with a handful of other Israeli historians known as the New Historians, changed the discourse about Israel's founding myths. Thanks to them, it's now indisputable that Israel's founding in 1948 was the result of a planned removal by force, by massacre, by destruction of the indigenous Palestinian population. So it could be supplanted by a Jewish one from around the world. What distinguishes Ilan from some of the other new historians, most notably Benny Morris, who also documented Israel's planned removal of Palestinians in 1948, is that Ilan is unequivocal in his condemnation not only of the ethnic cleansing of 1948, but of all that has followed, and by extension, the very notion that there can be a democratic Jewish state in historic Palestine. He's a vocal critic of Zionism as a political ideology because he understands that it is predicated on the erasure, the dispossession, the subjugation, the gradual but methodical destruction of another people. Ilan's career has been devoted to exposing Israel's settler colonial story, and he has been one of the most prolific writers on the subject. He's published 20 books, um, seemingly one every year, including A History of Modern Palestine, One Land, Two Peoples in 2004, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine in 2006, The Idea of Israel in 2014, Israel and South Africa, The Many Faces of Apartheid in 2015, Ten Myths About Israel in 2017, and most recently, and the subject of his talk tonight, The Greatest Prison on Earth, detailing how the objectives of 1948 have continued to shape Israel's actions since. In 1967, when Israel occupied the remainder of historic Palestine uh, and since then. Ilan is also unique among Israeli historians in his simultaneous involvement in politics and activism. He ran for Knesset for the Communist Hadash Party in 1999, and he is a vocal proponent of boycott, divestment, and sanctions of Israel. He's backed a one-state solution with equal rights for all, and he has advocated for the unconditional right of return for Palestinian refugees. As a result, you can imagine, there there was significant pressure on him in Israel after he publicly backed an academic boycott of Israeli institutions. And Ilan left Israel in 2007 and now lives and teaches in the UK at Exeter University, where he also founded the European Center for Palestine Studies, which is one of a handful of such centers around the world. I could say much more, but I'd much rather give the stage to Ilan, and after that, we'll have a conversation. So please uh, help me in welcoming Ilan Pape. Thank you. Good evening. Uh, Can you hear me? Everywhere? Good. Uh, Thank you, Dima, for your very moving and uh, amazing introduction. I really appreciate it and gives me a lot of courage to continue the evening. And I want to thank you all. I can't see you, but 
in the dark, you, you look very nice and, and <laughs> sympathetic. I'm sure I'm not wrong. Uh, I will check afterwards if my initial impression in the darkness is the correct one. <coughs> uh, as some of you may be aware, uh, there is a new and exciting development in the study of Israel and Palestine. Uh, and this is the application of the settler colonial model or paradigm to the case study of Israel and Palestine. What is settler colonialism? We make a distinction between settler colonialism and classical colonialism. The settler colonialists are Europeans who were forced to leave Europe due to persecution or a sense of existential danger and who settled in someone else's homeland. They were at first assisted by empires, but soon rebelled against them as they wished to redefine themselves as new nations in the new places. Their main obstacle, however, was not their, um, their empires and the struggle against these empires, but rather the presence of native populations. And they acted according to what one scholar uh, called the logic of the elimination of the native. At times, this led to a genocide, as happened here. At times, to apartheid, as occurred in South Africa. In Palestine, the presence of native population led to the ethnic cleansing operation in 1948 and ever since. The settlers also saw themselves as the indigenous and perceived the indigenous as aliens. The paradigm explains well what lay behind the ethnic cleansing operations in Palestine in 1948. Regardless of the quality of the Palestinian leadership, the ability or inability of the Arab world to help, the genuine or cynical wish of the West to compensate the Jewish people for the Holocaust and centuries of anti-Semitism, Zionism was a classical settler colonial movement that wanted a new land without the people who lived on it. Hence, long before the Holocaust, the Zionist settlers acted upon the logic of the elimination of the native, and 1948 provided the opportunity for partial realization of the vision of a de-Arabized Palestine. However, in 1948, only half of the indigenous population was expelled, and Israel succeeded in taking over 78% of the coveted new homeland, a homeland demanded by a secular Jewish settler movement, Zionism, by using a sacred religious text, the Bible, as a scientific proof for their right to national sovereignty in the land. And hence, the Palestinians, from this perspective, were seen as usurpers who took a land that was not theirs. The first settlers who came in between 1882 and 1914 could have not made it in Palestine without the help of the local Palestinians, whether it was for accommodation or to learn how to cultivate the land. But in their diaries and letters back home, usually written at the homes of Palestinians, they described the local hosts as the foreigners who usurped our ancient homeland and destroyed it. The inability to get rid of all the Palestinians and the takeover of most but not all of the land is an incompletion that explains the Israeli policy towards the Palestinians ever since 1948. This is the background for the harsh policy towards the Palestinians left within Israel, the 1948 Arabs, as the Palestinians would call them, or the Israeli Arabs, as Israel refers to them. Until 1956, 
this community was subjected to further ethnic cleansing operations. Dozens of villages were expelled. In them lived people already regarded as citizens of the new Jewish state, whose declaration of independence promised to protect them, and yet they were kicked out by the settler state. Because already then, democratic values or aspiration gave way to ethnic purity and racism. Then they were put under harsh military rule between 1956 and 1967 that robbed them of any normality in their life, where soldiers could arrest, shoot, or banish them at will. The settler colonial state saw its Arab citizens as aliens with the potential of becoming hostile aliens at any given moment. The book I'm presenting today, The Biggest Prison on Earth, claims that the settler colonial paradigm explains the Israeli policy leading to the 1967 war as, as it does explain its policy in the early years of the occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. In the book, the Israeli occupation itself, the actual occupation between the 6th of June and the 9th of June 1967, uh, is not described as it would be in most history books as a defensive response to an all-Arab attack but rather as an Israeli solution to the incompletion of the 1948 operations. Somewhere there is water. I know where does this. The paradigm of settler colonialism also offers an explanation for the major decisions Israel took after the war, decisions that expose that why there was no chance from the very beginning for any peace process based on a two-state solution. More than anything else, for me, it exposed the Israeli perception of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip as two huge mega-prisons that by now a third generation of hundreds and thousands of Israelis are, is involved in policing and maintaining as a way of life and looks, which looks to them as normal and acceptable, while the rest of us, I hope, look with disgust, horror, and dismay at this brutality and inhumanity imposed on millions of Palestinians incarcerated in these mega-prisons, and their only crime is that they are Palestinians. Nowhere in the world such mega-prison exists, and yet Israel until today has been absolved for this inhuman monstrosity it created in 1967 and still maintains today. The settler state needed the remaining 22% of Palestine as the borders of 1948 were described even by a dove like Abba Ibn as the Auschwitz borders. In the book, I describe how from 1948 onwards, important sections of the Israeli political and military elite planned the takeover of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. The plans moved into a more practical stage in 1963 when the principal politician who objected to the takeover of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, David Ben-Gurion, was removed from any significant role in Israel's political life. The book thus begins in many ways in 1963, when a group of senior officers and officials drew a plan called the Shacham Plan that would be implemented in 1967 to abolish the military rule imposed on the Palestinians inside Israel and moving this apparatus, the military rule, and imposed it on the Palestinians living in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip after their planned occupation. Here is the first quote from the book. I'll have three uh, quotes, I think, from the book uh, itself. 
the, this quote describes the 1963 meeting. It's called the University on the Hill. Givat Ram, the hill of Ram, is a sprawling, hilly neighborhood on the very western edge of present-day Jerusalem. Various government ministries, including the Knesset, part of the Hebrew University and the Bank of Israel, are located there. Israelis of a certain age, ethnic origin, and socioeconomic background developed a very nostalgic attitude towards the place. The hill makes a very brief and pastoral appearance in Amos Oz's first and famous novel, My Michael, published in 1968, where he says, where a small herd of sheep graze alongside the prime minister's office. There are no sheep in sight today, and the grazing fields of yesteryears are long gone. They were replaced by elaborate system of highways, metal gates, hanging bridges, and quite a beautiful rose garden. It is very unlikely that sheep were to be seen anywhere near the prime minister's office when Amos Oz published his book in 1968. But sheep did graze this hill when the Palestinian rural neighborhood, Sheikh el-Badr, was standing there. Few of its houses are still there today next to the Crown Plaza Hotel, frequented by Israeli members of Knesset who do not live in Jerusalem. This village was gradually swollen by the city and became an urban neighborhood until it was ethnically cleansed by the Israeli forces in 1948. It was a famous spot in the city as it overlooked one of Jerusalem's most renowned landmarks, the Valley of the Cross. Tradition has it that there stood the tree providing the wood for Christ's cross, and this is why on that alleged spot, Greek Orthodox monks built an impressive monastery still there today, caged between new Jewish neighborhoods and inlay roads. West of the monastery today lies one of the two main campuses of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. It is built on Sheikh el-Badr's confiscated land, sold to the university by the Israeli custodian of absentee lands, allegedly kept pending a decision about its future, but in reality sold to any Jewish individual or enterprise willing to pay a ridiculous low price for it. The university, until 1967, operated only in Givatram, as the other campus, Mount Scopus, became no man's land and therefore inaccessible. After the June 67 war, many of the Givatram campus departments were transferred to the old new campus of Mount Scopus, which was expanded significantly over confiscated Palestinian land. At the same time the Givat Ram campus was built, and north of it, a new site for the Israeli government was erected. Whereas the buildings of the campus were modest in appearance and were soon covered by pleasant lawns and greenery, it seems that the charm of this hilltop did not inspire the architect who built the governmental site of the Jewish state. With very little attention to pastoral scenery or the biblical heritage, they opted for huge lumps of cement spread all over the hill, wounding the natural beauty of this crest of the Jerusalem mountains. In the summer of 1963, in both locations, a group of unusual students were enrolled on this campus and on this hill for a month-long course. They were almost all with legal background of one sort or another. Some of them were members of the military administration that was ruling the areas in which the 1948 Palestinians, the Israeli Arabs, as they were called then, lived under a strict rule that robbed them of most of their basic rights. Others were officers in the legal section of the Israeli army or officials of the Ministry of Interior, and one or two were private lawyers. They were invited by the Department of Political Science at the Hebrew University. The course included lectures on military rule in general and on the political situation in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip in particular. 
There was also a discussion held about lessons to be learned from Israel's military rule in the Sinai and the Gaza Strip in 1956 and inside Israel since 1948. A short introduction to Islam was also part of the curriculum, and it ended up with a lecture on how Jerusalem was cleansed in 1948 from its Palestinian citizens. This was followed by, I quote, a celebratory meal, and everyone was in excellent mood, as was reported by one of the participants. The presence on Yivat Ram in 1963 was part of an overall new military strategy initiated by the Israeli chief of the general staff in 1963. The strategy was presented by the chief of staff to the army on May the 1st, 1963, and was meant to prepare the army for the need to run the West Bank and the Gaza Strip as occupied military areas. The West Bank and the Gaza Strip, of course, were not yet occupied, but the fact that four years before the actual occupation, the Israeli military was ready with a judicial and an administrative infrastructure for ruling the lives of one million Palestinians is highly significant. End of quote. Already four years before the actual takeover, it was clear that with the coveted new territory, the settler state would have new demographic problems. Like all settler colonial movements before them, space and people were the two main factors troubling the future of a settler colony. The more territory you get, the more natives you have. How to eliminate them was the issue, and the answer and methods depended on the capacity, circumstances, and the ability of the indigenous population to resist. And this is how it worked from 1967 onwards. <coughs> the decision of how to engage with the new demographic issue was rested with the 13th government of Israel. It was the most consensual government Israel ever had and ever will have. Every shade of Zionism and Jewish Orthodox anti-Zionism was represented in this unity government. This explains its ability to carve out a strategy that is still adhered to today. It is based on several decisions. The first was not to annex officially the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, but also never to give up that these territories as part of the space of a future Jewish state. This is how the geography, the space issue, was solved. As for the population, after some hesitation and quite substantial forced transfer of population, it was decided not to ethnically cleanse the rest of the Palestinians who lived in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. The status of the population was to have some official connection with the previous powers, namely Egypt and Jordan. But basically, as the Minister of Defense, Moshe Dayan, defined the new inhabitants of the greater Israel, they will be, he told the government, citizenless citizens. A worried Minister of Foreign Affairs, Abba Ibn, inquired how long can people live in such a condition? Oh, Dayan answered, at least for 50 years. The next decision was, to announce these, was not to announce these decisions and engage in a peace process with the help of the Americans, the aim of which was to obtain international, if possible Arab, and even maybe Palestinian legitimization or at least consent to the way Israel will have the territory without the people, and this would be called peace. It was taken for granted that there will be a genuine public debate in Israel about the future of the territories and that some friction with the Americans. 
But in the end of the day, the Israeli interpretation of what is peace and what is a solution, these ministers believed would prevail. Nothing in what happened in the next 52 years indicates that these politicians did not get it right, basing their hope on Palestinian fragmentation, Arab impotence, American immunity, and global indifference. The message of having the land without the people and calling it peace was, was devised in the months of June 1967. And we have now the documents from those government meetings. The Labour Party, still dominating Israeli and Zionist politics, always believed that some land can be considered, conceded for the sake of demographic purity. Hence, they were enchanted by the colonialist idea of partition, which also, alas, quite a few Palestinians fell over for, for years. Partitioning the new occupied territory was the way forward between a Jewish West Bank and a Gaza Strip and a Palestinian West Bank and a Gaza Strip. The first partition map was offered by Igal Alon, the Minister of Labor. The Jewish space would, the Jewish space would be determined, he said, in June 1967 by colonization. He drew a strategic map that left only densely populated Palestinian areas out of the future Jewish West Bank and Gaza Strip. The problem for the 13th government and the ones that follow, the Golda Meir government and the Yitzhak Rabin government, was the new messianic movement, Gush Emunim, which had a different map of colonization based on the Bible on, and the nationalistic imagination of Israeli archaeologists, which wanted to settle Jews precisely in densely populated Palestinian areas. This twin effort from above and below, already by 1944, 1974, defined the West Bank in particular as a partition space between a Jewish West Bank and a Palestinian one, the former growing all the time, the latter shrinking all the time. The other constituent element of the settler colonial policy after 1967 was how to rule and police these citizenless citizens. In the last 52 years, as my book tries to show, the settler state employs two models of running the life of millions of citizenless citizens. Both models are mega prison models, with the logic of a prison, with the only one different that you can leave the prison and become a refugee with no right of return. One model was the open prison model, and the other one, the maximum security prison model. The open prison model is based on allowing freedom of movement inside the Palestinian areas and the controlled movement outside the Palestinian areas and between the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. No spatial growth for the Palestinian is allowed. No new villages or towns can be built on any land coveted for the present and future Jewish state or settlements. No resistance would be tolerated to the geopolitical reality imposed by Israel, and a certain level of autonomy would be granted for running municipal affairs. The first open prison was run between 1967 and 1987. Life was constantly monitored by the army, and since 1981 by an outfit called the Civil Administration, ruled by a set of regulations that gave the military unlimited power in the life of the citizenless citizens. They were arrested without trial, expelled, their houses and businesses demolished, wounded and killed at the discretion of soldiers, quite often of lower ranks. 
This was on before 1967 and 1987 for the first time, and then between 1993 and 2000 for the second time. It is an, on offer today for areas A, B, and C in the West Bank since 2004. Every new model of an open prison is worse for the inmates than the previous one. Privileges granted in the first term are reduced as long-term punishment for resisting the model. Remember, this is the world of the jailer and the warden, and this is part of such a reality. So the second open prison, what one can call the open prison model of the Oslo Accord, uh, which created mini prisons in areas A, B, and C and the Gaza Strip, is far less open than the one intact until Oslo. The didactic approach is inbuilt into the Israeli perception, supported by Israeli Orientalists, how best to teach the Palestinians lessons that would docile them and disempower them to the point of submission. The first Palestinian resistance to the open prison model was the first intifada in 1987. The punishment was replacing the open prison model with a maximum security prison. Between 1987 and 1993, it included short-term punitive actions, mass arrests without trial, wounding and killing demonstrators, massive demolition of houses, shutdown of businesses and the educational system, and most importantly, further expropriation of land for the sake of Jewish settlements. Here I would like to bring another quote from the book for how the uh, first model of maximum security prison was run. It's called the calendar of the occupation. <coughs> a more diluted form of a closure was the curfew imposed by the army for a few days on towns and villages and during Jewish festivals on the West Bank and the Gaza Strip as a whole. The kind of action, this kind of action began in 1967 in the early days of the occupation and continued on a daily basis. I chose only one year, 1993, on the very eve of the Oslo Accord, so as to, no, to show what kind of a reality the Accord promised and utterly failed to change. As one NGO monitoring the curfew policy noted, every Palestinian living in the occupied territories had spent an average of 10 weeks a year under a house curfew. The worst day in the calendar of the occupation, apart from the aftermath of a particularly daring or violent operation by one of the Palestinian factions, were the three days around Israel's Day of Independence, celebrated according to the Hebrew calendar, and that in 1993 fell in April. The town of Hanunis in the Gaza Strip, like all the other towns and villages of the West Bank and the Strip, was put under military curfew for these three days. This short period was enough for the army to perform its routine devastation. <coughs> Muhammad Ahmad al-Astal, who, who was 24 years old then, recalled how the soldiers burst into the house where his friends usually gathered, about 10 men all in all. The soldiers took four of them to another room. He remained with three others members of the family. Two of those were taken by the soldiers to the room's corner and were beaten with the rifle stocks. They were punched, slapped, and kicked. He was ordered with another family member to empty the cupboard from all its contains, clothing and other household stuff. Here is the rest of the tale in his words. The soldier called me, slapped me on the face, and told me, you are Hamas. I returned to empty the cupboard, but I was called again. This time they told me, you are Islamic Jihad, and slept me again. 
There was a third round when he was called, you are a PLO. Another man in the room was treated in a similar way. They were both summoned. And he recalls, one soldier held me by the neck and banged our heads against each other. It turned out that in the next room, the same abuse was taking place, and they were united with two men from the other room in order to stand facing the wall with their hands stretched in the air. The soldier gave us back our ID card to hold up, to hold up in the air and told us to remain like this. After half an hour, the older members of the family told them that the soldiers left. Hassan Abel Saidi Abu Labada, 29-year-old, married with two children, also resident of Han Yunis, was woken up by the soldiers at 2 a.m. in the morning with a punch into his face from a soldier's rifle, followed by additional blows. His brother Manar, 23-year-old, was taken out of his bed and thrown at the family's car parked at the yard. The soldier asked about the whereabouts of Abu Sahmanda, whom he had not known at all. This led to more punches direct to his eyes, followed by the usual routine of a false emptying of one's cupboard. The soldier tore with a knife the sofa, and in his own words, they found a kitchen knife in the kitchen. What is it? It's a bread knife, I answered. The soldiers punched me with a knife on the nose. I was wounded and bled. The soldier took a sack of rice and demanded that I empty it on the floor. I said it was only rice, so he emptied it himself and then took an oil tin and poured it on the clothes and the rice. They left. Nobody was arrested. Nothing was taken. Fatma Hassan Tabashe Sufyan was 61 years old, married and a mother of four, and she woke up on the 6th of April 1993 at 3 a.m. in the morning. The soldiers broke into her house and pushed her towards the wall and asked her where her children were. They were asleep, she replied. They woke up her son's side, 30 years old, kicking him and beating him with her hand and rifle stock until he was splitting blood all over the place. Her other son, Ibrahim, was badly beaten, and the Betselem researcher who took her evidence testified that long after the incident, he could still see ecchymosis stains on his back. Both sons were taken out of the yard and stationed against the wall. The soldier found two toy guns and began slashing the two with it until they broke. Then they gathered everyone in the complex, 27 persons in one room, and threw in a shock grenade. Saad and Ibrahim were ordered to empty the cupboard while they were continuously beaten by the soldiers, shouting at them, you are Hamas and we are Golani, the name of the military brigade to which they belonged. They did not spare a blind old brother of Fatma, 100 years old, who was abused by the soldiers, throwing mattresses and blankets at him. Thus, every April from 1987 until 1993, this was the routine of the collective punishment. But it was not these three days that matter. Collective punishment in the March to May 93 period robbed 116,000 Palestinian workers from their source of living working in Israel, bisected the occupied territories into four disconnected areas, and as noted, barred any access to Jerusalem. Seen from that perspective, when the Oslo Accord was implemented as a territorial and security arrangement in 1994, it was just an official confirmation for the policy already in place since 1987. End of quote. The Palestinians were offered as a sophisticated, were offered a sophisticated open prison model in Oslo. 
regardless of how Palestinians and the world saw the accord. This is why the end of occupation is not mentioned in the Oslo Accord, and the accord does not promise any end to the intensive Israeli involvement in the life of the Palestinians, even if the Palestinians would have implemented every Israeli demand under the accord. However, this model included the long-term punishment, the didactic one that I mentioned before. Since 1994, there was no freedom of movement anymore inside the Palestinian areas, let alone outside the Palestinian areas, and the Judaization of the West Bank increased. The Gaza Strip was encircled in 1994 with a barbed wire, and the privilege granted for the first model in the, of the open prison for people in Gaza to work in Israel was withdrawn. Another permanent punishment was the allocation of more water to the Gush Katif settlements in the Gaza Strip and cutting the Strip into two parts controlled by Israel. The water crime done in the open prison model are important to be revisited. And here is another quote from my book. Article 40 of the Oslo Accord was supposed to increase the water resources available to the Palestinian by almost 30 MCM but only one-third of this promised quota was given. Even the addi that additional quantity was lost in a policy of permits which controlled and distributed water as means of reward and punishment in the open mega-prison, where the Palestinians' drinking water networks and ability to drill wells depended on the Israeli goodwill. Moreover, the Israeli National Water Company, Mekorot, tapped by the end of the century into mountain aquifers due to the drought and continued to do so in times of water shortage while the Palestinians were prohibited from doing so even for agricultural purposes. Another problem Palestinians faced was Israel's demolition of water harvesting sto storage pools. According to the Palestine report, for example, in the Hebron area of Arub, and near the Israeli settlement of Kirat Arba, some farmers tried to build storage tanks to collect rainwater, but the Israeli authorities destroyed them. Palestinians were faced with a growing problem of pollution from water waste coming from the Israeli settlements. These settlements dumped the water, wastewater, especially industrial waste, into Palestinian lands on purpose. This polluted both agricultural lands and groundwater. As the report on which we rely for this description noted, clearly the contamination of water resources by residential and commercial development can have a deleterious effect on public health. The Israeli Daily Ma'ariv reported the Palestinian children near prosperous settlements fell ill because they lacked water and suffered from poor hygiene. Tests carried in various parts discovered high level of bacteria, nitrates, and other hazardous industrial impurities and as there was no alternative water resources, the population had to use these sources with incredible risk to their life. Palestinian health officials estimated that between 1994 and 1999, 66,000 Palestinians were hospitalized with water pollution-related illnesses, and another 290,000 sought out-of-patient care for such illnesses. When Palestinian villages attempted in November 1999 to build a sand barrier to stop such a flow from the Jewish colony in Gaza, farther Rome, they were prevented by the Israeli army from doing so. The wastewater brought with them a dramatic increase in the number of mosquitoes and other insects and contagious diseases, particularly skin diseases among children. In 1999, in several cases, these water waste burst 
burst through dams and submerge cultivated land and at times even houses. In 2001, such an implosion was so dramatic that it was widely reported in the world. Some poetic justice occurred in the winter of 2012 when the water burst the apartheid wall near a Jewish settlement inside the Green Line, Bet Hefer, and flooded the houses. I do not mean that anyone draws satisfaction from watching Israelis suffering a similar fate, but just that when you corrupt the land as an invader, nature turns a blind eye to nationality or ethnic identity. The ecological damage of the occupation transpired towards the end of the century in other aspects of life. The settlements brought with them industries, aluminum, leather tanning, textile dyeing, batteries, fiberglass, plastic, and similar chemical industries whose waste is dumped near the Palestinian villages. Solid waste from Israeli industrial zone were routinely dumped in Palestinian areas. Wadi Bet Hanun, for example, is a receptacle for waste from the nearby area's industrial zone. A report by the Palestinian Ministry of Environment stated that since 1987, Israel dumped solid waste in the Azun area near Kalkilia, leading to a marked increase in dangerous disease such as cancer among Palestinians in the area. The report reviewed the many attempts to smuggle Israeli solid waste into the Palestinian land. The report also warned against Israeli attempts to relocate factories causing environmental hazards from in Israel into the West Bank settlements and pointed out that 40 out of the 160 factories in the settlement pose real environmental hazards. That's the end of that quote. If life under the first model of the open prison was unacceptable to the Palestinian, the second one was worse, both in objective terms, but even more importantly, as it was presented as part of a peace process. The years devoted to Oslo and its implementation were creating life under conditions which were far worse than those in the first open prison model. <coughs> the second uprising generated again a punitive maximum security model, far worse in its short-term punitive action and long-term punishments. The massive use of military power included F-16 and tanks against civilian population, in particular during the 2002 Defense Shield operation. An herbicide that we had witnessed in Syria, Iraq, and Yemen recently took already place in the West Bank in 2002. This barbaric assault was a prelude for the use of such power in the third model of the maximum security prison imposed on Gaza after the Hamas took over the Strip in 2006. In 2007, the two models clearly transpired in the way Israel rules the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, still loyal to the main decisions the 13th government took in 1967, not to annex, not to expel, and not to withdraw. The only decision discarded was the need to present it all as temporary measures pending peace, or to describe the open prison model as a peace plan. Even the Israeli public and politician got tired from this charade and adopted what Prime Minister Ehud Olmert called unilateralism. This is the reality today. Where there is collaboration, there is an open prison model. This takes place in area A and B in the West Bank, which include the long-term punitive actions, hundreds of checkpoints, and an apartheid world meant to humiliate to the point of submission millions of people under the belief that this would discourage a third uprising. The checkpoints are the cruel recruiting ground for a network of informants that is meant to attack the dignity and self-respect on a whole nation that miraculously still succeeds in remaining human and steadfast today.
and the closure of whole towns and villages with only one exit controlled day and night by the army and recently by private companies complements this matrix of control of the present-day open mega-prison of the West Bank. Where there is resistance in the Gaza Strip, the maximum security prison has turned into a ghetto with Israeli rationing food and calories undermining the health and economy to the point of creating a human catastrophe as acknowledged by the United Nations prediction that, that the Gaza Strip would be unsustainable for human life from next year onwards. The military punishment is no other than a set of war crimes, an incremental genocide of the Palestinian people in the Gaza Strip. This is achieved by dehumanizing the Palestinian, including children, depicting them as soldiers in an enemy's army that can legally be targeted as the army, as army forces. This was the same doctrine used in the Nakba in 1948. A village was an army base, a neighborhood was a military outpost, and whoever lived there were enemy soldiers, not men, women, and children. All the Zionist parties in Israel, in one form or another, subscribe to these two models as the only game in town. The dominant political powers in Israel wish to import this twin model now into Israel proper, vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinian minority inside Israel, and they might succeed in doing so. And the newly passed nationality law is an indication that this indeed is the way forward. The only way of stopping it is first to recognize the settler colonial nature of Israel, and as a result to understand that what is needed is not peace, but decolonization not just of the areas occupied in 1967, but of the whole of historical Palestine, one which will include the implementation of the Palestinian refugees' right of return. Secondly, we should go back and revisit the two-state solution as an open prison model and think hard how one can create one democratic state for all, taking into account two things. One, that the representative bodies of the Palestinians until today still subscribe to the two-state solution. And secondly, that there is already one settler apartheid Israel all over historical Palestine. Ergo, we need a Palestinian change of mind, an international endorsement of the BDS of a way forward, and then, and then we might even succeed with some of the Jewish citizens of changing their mind, provided we can fight in the U.S. and elsewhere the ridiculous allegation that such a vision is tantamount to anti-Semitism. I would like to end in the seven. Thank you. I would like to end with the last quote from the book, uh, with a protocol from the military court of 2006, which is a daily occurrence for any Palestinian kidnapped by Israel from any part of historical Palestine that I hope sustains my claim that the mega prison is real and it can be abolished only by pressure and struggle and not by a peace process. Settler colonies, settler colonialism is a structure and not an event. And therefore, any point in this brutal history that I would point to or illustrate to you is a point in time but also a contemporary reality. The last quote from the book. If outside guests would visit any of the military or civil courthouse active in the business of occupation, they need not bother with long planning. They can choose any day in the week. In each location, thousands of innocent Palestinians undergo one of the most dehumanizing process under the boot of a modern occupation. Below is a glimpse into half an hour 
in such a daily in such a day in the life of a respectable citizen of the city of Nablus who I will name here a citizen K in homage to Kafka K was under the category of manua bend in Hebrew namely not allowed to move out of Nablus in any direction here in this quote we find out that manua has even more sinister meaning than just someone who is not allowed to pass through checkpoints here it means also someone who is denied any contact with the lawyer or meetings with their families while their interrogation takes place. You can be such a manua for a very long time, sometimes for years. From, for all the hundreds of reports one can nowadays easily access by volunteers who try and monitor a modicum of these trials, I chose the case of Mr. K for two reasons. Firstly, the defendant was a manua and hence not present in the court when the police requested the extension of his arrest. Secondly, this case involved an enthusiastic young lawyer, not yet worn down and dispersed like the rest of his colleagues who regard the proceeding in court as a charade and a lost case. His insistence of representing someone he was not allowed to meet transformed in the court in, into a despondent attempt to discover the logic behind the systematic long-haul arrest without a trial, without anyone telling the prisoners or the lawyers for what reason. Due to his insistence, we can expose for a short moment what does it mean to be a Palestinian who lives in Nablus in 2006 or in 2019. Any Palestinian is in danger of finding himself or herself in such a nightmarish situation, whether he is a citizen of Israel or of the Gaza Strip the West Bank, East Jerusalem, or if he or she would be kidnapped from a refugee camp in Lebanon. Each one of them can be arrested, interrogated, denied the lawyer, and their cases would be brought for a trial for the sake of extending the detention every few weeks for years on end. As dictators bother to have referendums, so does the Israeli legal system pride itself of bringing these poor victims for a proper discussion in court for extending what is called here in Israel or there in Israel in the local jargon administrative arrests, a euphemism that is meant to calm domestic criticism and allow self-deception on part of those involved daily in imposing this brutal praxis. The system is so efficiently oiled these days that each such appearance in court becomes a very short procedure. I don't know if any one of you had been in such a court, but it takes usually three to four minutes. Any offense from a parking ticket in East Jerusalem, loss of documents or failure to produce them in checkpoints, affiliation to a Palestinian group, bad family association, and just being in the wrong place in the wrong time exposes the average Palestinian to the scene I'm about to describe. So our hopeful young lawyer, obviously Palestinian himself, represented a friend of his, Citizen K, whom he knows well, but whom he was not allowed to meet ever since K was kidnapped from his office in Nablus. <coughs> I say kidnapped because he was transferred from the occupied territories in stark violation of the Geneva Convention to a civil court and jail inside Israel. Citizen K was a deputy manager in a local bank. When he was brought before the judge, he had already spent a month in jail. K was represented by a group of lawyers who en masse tried to represent a large group of Palestinians. On that day, there were all in all 15 people brought for extension of their arrest. The young acquaintance of K, our hopeful young lawyer, who comes from Nazareth, was part of the otherwise tired and pessimistic group of lawyers. Unlike his colleagues, 
He still wished to know why Kay was arrested. Needless to say, Kay was not present in the Petah Tikva court. His interlocutors were the judge, an Ashkenazi Jew, and a police prosecutor, quite often, as in this case, a Druze. The Druze serve in large numbers in the border police that operates within the occupied territories. They also dominate the warden's core of the prison system as they are the majority among the junior police and military prosecutors. They are 1% of the population, but they have been rewarded for the long-time collaboration with the Jewish state since 1948 with these jobs that turns them into the main vehicle of the, for the occupying power in Palestine. Here is the verbatim discussion in court, and with this I will end. The lawyer. What is the allegation? What did he do? The police prosecutor. It is all in a secret report. The lawyer. What is he suspected of? The prosecutor. It is all in a secret report. I cannot say. He's engaged with a hostile organization. The lawyer. Is there any specific, anything specific? The prosecutor. The activity and the involvement are all in a secret report. The lawyer. Was he in contact with Hamas person? The prosecutor. I did not say this. The lawyer. Can you tell me what are the allegations in a way that would not harm the investigation? The prosecutor. No. The lawyer. Is it a direct activity or a suspicion that stems from his status as an inhabitant of the occupied territories or his presence in a certain place? The prosecutor. It is what he is doing, activity in the Hamas. The lawyer. Did he admit the allegation? The prosecutor. It is all in the secret report. The lawyer, I would like to ask the court to instruct the representative of the police to answer. The judge, he cannot answer as there is no yes or no answer for this. The lawyer, I have to know whether my client admitted the allegations or denied them. The judge, after looking at the secret report, I find that there is no room for a reply. The lawyer, my client is detained for 34 days. Can I know what was done in all this time? The judge, do not ask him, the police representative, questions he cannot reply. The prosecutor, we ask for extension of detention for another 22 days. The lawyer, are you using this time to wear him out? The prosecutor, no. The lawyer, is this the reason why you cannot answer what you did until today? The judge, I'm here for you. You are the lucky one. Other judges would have told you you have only two questions. Hurry up, ask what you want. The lawyer, the actions you need require 22 days. The prosecutor, this is a complicated investigation to justify a long period. The lawyer, what is so complicated? The prosecutor, it is all in the report. The lawyer, is the allegation of a contact with a Hamas person because he manages a bank? The prosecutor, not directly. The lawyer, so we are not talking about transfer of money. The prosecutor, the prosecutor it is all in the secret file. The lawyer in despair. It is only in the secret file. So what can one say? The judge. You are doing, you are going to a shut door. Then you try a window and it is shut too. You try but do not be surprised. There are no answers. The lawyer. I thought we were in a democratic country. This is about human rights, not even civic rights. What can I ask about? The disappointed lawyer gave in and allowed his more experienced colleague to take over. Taking over meant not even trying a dialogue with anyone, just accepting the verdict of detention for a person who did nothing, had no access to a lawyer, and was not present. Still, one exhausted colleague, maybe stirred by the enthusiasm of his young friend, made the last effort. He noted that 34 days ago, when the defendant was brought to trial, even the Israeli judge 
was unhappy about the thinness of the evidence and wrote in his verdict, and I quote, I am extending the detention of the defendant, but I feel uneasy as it is, as it, about it as it may concern an innocent man. The new judge was moved by this intervention and decided to extend this time the detention for only 18 days and not 22, as requested by the police. The defendant, a father of twins with bone defects, remained for a long period in the atrocious Israeli prison system, leaving his family without the bread earner, still not knowing what he's blamed for and when will he be released. He's still in jail today. He's one of the thousands arrested in such a manner in 2006 and the hundreds of thousands who processed in such a manner, were processed in such a manner since 1967. This was a relatively long process. The other 14 Palestinians on that day were resent to jail by the efficient production line. The, ma the massive numbers involved blunted everyone concerned, from the judges, the prosecutors, to the lawyers of the defense. Witnessing it once, you cannot escape the banality of the evil involved here and its quick and, and routine efficiency. Thank you. That concludes the reading for this event. Up next is the conversation. Thank you for that, Ilan. That was graphic, as you said, and necessary, I think, to, to understand what it's like. How's the sound? Good. I'll, um, I don't know if I can channel all of you, but um, since we can't take your questions, uh, I, I'd like to, to start. That what you ended with really reminds me of some of the cases we've seen in the U.S. Um, charging material support for terrorism, and Palestinians are often the victims in these cases. Um, and the collaboration with Israel on these kinds of prosecutions is phenomenal. Um, and you see Shin Bet agents come and testify, and they're allowed to testify anonymously in disguise. And there are secret files, <laughs> and you can't mention the occupation, and you can't mention um, 1948. And um, I'm it's it's really uh, it, not to mention the kind of mass incarceration system here in the U.S. that targets communities of color in particular. Do you do you think about those kinds of uh, uh, connections and 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 have you seen that kind of collaboration? Uh, between the U.S. And, and Israel in the in the legal sense? Yes, and not uh, only with the United States, also with Europe. Since uh, the so-called war on terror started, uh, uh, kind of enhanced by a new wave of Islamophobia, uh, Israel uh, exports securitization, uh, not only to the United States, but also to European countries. And it offers a model of how to deal with individual cases of terrorism based on its model of incarceration, oppression, uh, and brutalization in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. 
And um, it's, it's a very worrying uh, development because uh, Israel is still accepted by the people who manage security in this country and manage homeland security in other Western countries. They still accept Israel as a kind of uh, the expert state on these issues. And there is a great danger that these methods would be exported from Israel into the rest of the West. I remember when the Israeli Minister of Transport, uh, Katz, uh, um, visited Belgium after one of these attacks in Brussels. He said on Israeli, uh, on the Belgian television, uh, you know, he said to the audience, you have only few terrorists and you don't know how to deal with them. We have millions of terrorists and we know how to deal with them. We can help you. And this was done in a brusque and simplistic way, but this is the way Israel exports itself, and this is the way, since we created this idea that there is a war on terror, uh, especially against Islam, that they can present themselves as the experts. So I do see the actual uh, collaboration happening here and in Brazil, for instance, uh, in other places, Uh, and I also see something very worrying, if I may add, The Israeli military industry and security industry is using the Gaza Strip as a laboratory in order to show in real life how the new weapons work. They intentionally use the tension on the Gaza border in order to experiment with new weapons of destruction that then can be demonstrated as effective to governments all over the world that want to use excessive force in order to oppress legitimate uh, uh, uprisings and demonstrations and resistance movements. And they don't hide it. <laughs> no, they don't hide it at all. They're very proud of it. They market these things as, uh, uh, absolutely. as tested, it's, right? It's, it, it's part of this mentality that I was trying to talk about in the beginning of my uh, lecture uh, uh, today, that we have a third generation of Israelis who police the Palestinians. Uh, It's not easy to police millions of people. And you need hundreds of thousands of people in order to do this. And they come from all walks of life in Israel. And they really think that what they're doing is sacred. And they really believe that there's nothing wrong in the inhumanity and barbarism that they exercise in their relationship with the population. And therefore, they think that they can export it as a moral uh, uh, product and not just as an efficient military one. Yeah, yeah. And hence, there are campaigns now that are targeting the collaboration between U.S. police forces. And, Absolutely, uh, and rightly know, so. Uh, I want to um, get a little personal. Um, okay. <laughs> um, and here you talk a little bit. I mean, you were born in Haifa, Uh, You served in the Israeli army. Uh, You went to Hebrew University. You taught at Haifa University for, what, two decades? Yes, at least. Um, Were you, did you grow up critical of uh, of Israel, or was there a process for you Mm -hmm. um, uh, really kind of questioning what Israel is? My, uh, my parents are not responsible for my bad behavior. I, 
here openly absolve them from any responsibility. It's all my making. Uh, my family was not political and definitely was not anti-Zionist. Uh, no, it was my own journey uh, that began somewhere in the 1970s after the war of 1973 in which I participated as a soldier. And it continued with my great interest in history uh, as in high school and in the university. And I was fascinated by the history in the place I lived in. And uh, somehow uh, this journey into the past revealed for me, and I still don't understand why I didn't do the same for many other Israelis who became historians, revealed to me a history uh, of oppression, colonialism, colonialism, and ethnic cleansing that no one told me about it. Nobody taught me about it. I think it also helped that I left Israel for my PhD studies to Oxford in England. And I chose on purpose an, an Arab supervisor, Albert Khorani. Uh, and uh, I think it was very important to have him and the other supervisor, the late Roger Owen, as, as, as mentors to see things not only from the outside, but from a perspective of people who are not uh, uh, captivated and are not captives of the Israeli Zionist uh, narrative. Uh, but all in all, I think it's a journey. There is no epiphany. There is no great uh, moment that this happens. Uh, every event in the f present shows you that you should look again in the past because it might have happened there. So if you think that the 1982 attack on Lebanon is not a war of, no, of cho is a war of choice, you ask yourself, was maybe 1967 a war of choice? Or maybe 48 was a war of choice? So I think this continued dialogue between the present and the past, for me, was, were the main material with, with which I built my worldview, if you want, uh, on the Palestine issue. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, in, in my work at Palestine Legal, protecting activists from this uh, immense backlash that we're seeing right. against uh, people who speak out for, for Palestinian rights, it's shocking to me that the arguments are the same. <laughs> <laughs> that even though you have thoroughly debunked the myths, um, they are still alive and well, in a sense. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, Palestinians are still the aggressors. Uh, Jews are indigenous to Palestine and uh, are therefore not occupiers. Um, Zionism is a liberation struggle. Um, Palestine was a dump before they got there. Why, why are these myths so persistent in our political process, in our... Uh, in in perpetuating the occupation and and everything that's happening. Well, I ask myself the same question, and I my my way of answering questions is usually by writing books. So I wrote a book about it, which is called the Idea of Israel, because I I I, I, I was troubled by the same uh, uh, conundrum that you you raise here, and my answer was that Israel actually invested, and before that, the Zionist movement invested quite a lot in creating this fertile ground that you cannot easily debunk these fabrications just by presenting facts. Mm -hmm. uh, Edward Said was the first one who pointed to it in a 1983 article, Permission to Narrate, when he said 
Facts are not the things that would convince people to support the Palestinians. You need to have the compassion. You need to have a certain moral position which would allow you to see the facts in a different eye. And what I claim in my book, The Idea of Israel, is that the Israeli academia, and especially the Israeli cinema, uh, also through Hollywood, created a certain interpretation of the reality of which we talked about, you know, the, the Jews as the indigenous, the Palestinians as aliens, the Palestinians as aggressors and primitive, and all these fabrications. But they worked very hard to substantiate it twice. Once through academic work, namely to say scientifically you can show that the land was empty and that there is no Palestinian people and it belongs only to the Jewish people. They used the academia for this, which gladly collaborated in Israel with this and also here in the United States. And then they used the cinema as, and later the television as a kind of to work on the imagination, not just on the heart, if you want, and not just about the cognition. Uh, you know, starting with the film Exodus, where the Israelis are portrayed like Aryans uh, of, Paul, uh, of the Paul Newman stock, and, uh, and the Palestinians are kind of a mixture between uh, uh, Godzilla and, and uh, 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 out, uh, extraterrestrial uh, creature from, from the space. And, and, but then it became even more sophisticated. Then you have a whole literature. So it's, it's, it won't be that easy. I wish it would be that easy to come and say to people, here are the facts. You see, you were misled. These are fabrication. No. I think what you really have to do is to rehumanize the Palestinians. Because the most important method of any settler colonial movement is dehumanization. Because we have to remember, also in this country, Settlers usually are victims of persecution. So they have to victimize someone else, and the only way they can do it is by dehumanizing them. And the only way of even making the settler think that what they did is wrong is not by facts, but by humanizing the Palestinians. And I think that's what I've tried to do in the 20 books I've written. It was not just exposing the facts. I was trying to say to people, a three-year-old Palestinian baby is not a terrorist. He cannot be a terrorist. It's impossible. Stop for a moment and think. Uh, an old lady, like the one I describe in the book from Han Yunis, the 61-year-old lady, cannot be a terrorist. She's a mother, and she reacts as a mother. Uh, but there is no compassion in the Israeli public and no compassion among the people in this country who support Israel, who do not see the Palestinians as normal human beings. I, I think in this in this moment that we're in, um, you know, with the with the rise of the resurgence of uh, white nationalism here um, and ethno nationalism and fascism, um, it's it really seems to have bolstered Israel's positions, and they they seem emboldened. Mm -hmm. By it, and certainly by the Trump administration, that is uh, enabling some of the most extreme uh, positions um, in history. You know, um, I'm curious how you see that playing out in mm -hmm. Israel, um, and and what's the relation to what's happening here, and 
Mm-hmm. And what do we do? <laughs> yes. How do we get out of How this? How do we get out of this? Um, you know, I, I would like to say sort of three things about it. One is that as, my, as much as I detest uh, uh, the Trump's administration policy on Israel, I do not accept that it is worse than the policies towards Israel of the previous administrations. I, I think this man is more, tra- for whatever reason, is more transparent than those who yeah. preceded him. Certainly. And he doesn't bring anything new into the American policy. It's the same policy. Unconditional support for the Israeli brutality, immunity from any international condemnation, and supplying Israel with all the money and the weapon it needs to continue the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. This has not changed. So that's the first point. The second point is that uh, what is interesting is, is the fact that uh, uh, what happens here from an Israeli perspective is something that already happened before in certain European countries, such as Hungary, uh, Poland, uh, and then later on in Brazil. Um, but interestingly enough, this is not enough, and maybe that's a point of optimism. It's not enough for most Israelis to be supported by people which are regarded by their own society as nationalist, fascist, or extreme. The Israeli self-perception was, and remember, the left was the main supporter of Israel, not the right wing. The self-perception of Israel was, we are regarded in America, for instance, both by the Democratic Party and the Republican Party as an asset to the United States, as the only democracy in the Middle East or the the villa in the jungle. And, And I think what happens now is that suddenly the Israelis learn that you cannot use F-16 against the BDS. And it drives them mad, because usually they know how to solve problems by bombing them. But you cannot bomb the BDS. I mean, they're using brutal, as you know, they're using brutal means, but they have a a real issue here. And the fact that there is right-wing political elites that are collaborating with them is nothing new. The new thing is that the right wing is now collaborating with them. Previously, it was the left wing that collaborated with them. And the last point I would say is something that you, you hinted to, and I think is absolutely true, that we have to decide whether we are pessimistic or optimistic of this aberration that we see in the history of the, of the United States under the Trump era and in other places, including in Israel. And we should ask ourselves, and I think as historians we have a more positive point on view on this, and, and say that actually these bad periods will come to an end. We were there before. In fact, we were in far worse periods, even in this country, uh, in, in the modern history of the United States. And I think that if we will be able at least to use this kind of recognition and say that what happens in Israel and Palestine, and what happens in the United States, and what happens in Europe, and what happens in Brazil, is part of the same human story. We would debunk the most important Israeli myth of all, the myth of exceptionalism. And I think this is something that we should sort of drive some courage from that. Mm -hmm. The fact that now, and especially what you mentioned about the Israeli kind of witnesses coming to the military courts, or the courts in the United States, now, a struggle for the civil rights in America is the same struggle as the civil rights in Israel. 
This is something Israel has worked hard through APAC to prevent. The, the last thing they want is that someone would compare Martin Luther King to any Palestinian, or that would, one would compare the march of, uh, in the South for civil rights with the Palestinian march in Gaza. But they cannot control it. They cannot control it. Young people in particular see the parallels. Young people are using the term apartheid of South Africa in their activity for Palestine in American campuses. It drives the Israelis mad. The only question I'm asking myself is, why don't we see yet uh, consequences of this shift on the ground in Palestine? Why are the political elites so strong and so undemocratic mm -hmm. not to allow the impulse of so many people in this country and elsewhere in the world to end the Israeli oppression and colonization? Why isn't there any move on the ground and my historical answer is, it will come. Hmm. I'm sure it will come. I, I talked with Mandela, and I talked with Desmond Tutu, and they told me that the last days of apartheid in South Africa were the worst. And they lost hope about a year before apartheid fell. Uh, I think we should not get into this mentality of despair just because uh, uh, we still have not succeeded in changing that reality. Uh, I think we have a very young generation of Palestinians now in academia, in culture, on the ground in Palestine that I think have a different idea of how to move forward the resistance. And I believe that these young people would be far more successful than we were uh, uh, because they are much more in tune with this world than we are. And I think we should give them all the support we can by continuing the BDS project and by making sure that any person with a modicum of decency is not afraid to say that Zionism is racism, that Israel is an apartheid state, and we should want to see it a pariah state unless it changes its politics. And. And yet, when, when we say all those things, as you alluded to, we're anti-Semitic, <laughs> and we are pro-terrorist. I mean, this is, uh, yeah. we, yeah. our cases, the cases that come to us, you know, the majority, the underlying argument is that criticism of Israel is anti-Semitism. Yeah. It's this complete conflation of Zionism and Judaism, um, and there's, you know, once, once you're smeared, what's your answer? No, I'm not anti-Semitic. I have Jewish friends. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, yes. uh, so it's and, it's, and it's a tactic that is being used across the board. I mean, um, uh, you know, here in the U.S., it's used against uh, students and academics, and and obviously we know in the U.K. that uh, Jeremy Corbyn has has uh, uh, faced faced that. But it's also, you know, th there's a redefinition of anti-Semitism that says basically any criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic, and there, you know, here in this country, there there's legislation that imposes this definition. Um, and, and the same is happening in the UK. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the academic and political 
uh, context in in yeah. um, England right now? Yeah, maybe before that, if I can sort yeah. of comment on what you, what you said, uh, uh, I, I think that uh, it's very important to historicize these accusation that uh, criticism of Israel is anti-Semitism. I think it will help a lot uh, uh, to challenge and expose these allegations as empty and, 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 and baseless. Uh, Israel was not using, if you noticed, until 2005, 2006, the main Israeli propaganda was that if you criticize Israel, you support Islamic terrorism. They didn't use anti-Semitism very much. This strategy has failed. And now they're using the idea that you can stifle any criticism on Israel by alleging that it is anti-Semitism. Now, it's important to uh, uh, find the space. I'm not saying it's easy, but you can't do it in a soundbite. You cannot say to people, no, you are wrong, and by that end the, the debate. You, you have to say to them, do you have time? I'll explain to you exactly the history of Zionism, the history of Judaism, the history of critic, criticism of Zionism, and we should demand that space, even in court, because the reason that these allegations are brought against Jeremy Corbyn in England or here against activists is because of the success of the activists in the civil society in the West to shift the support from Israel to the Palestinians. And this is the reaction. The reaction is to use legislation and to use these accusations. Now, it's very important to contextualize it and explain to people why it is done. I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm just saying that if you have the space, I think you can easily defeat this. And this is what we did in England. Uh, uh, Israel is terrified by the prospect of a leader of a major party in Britain becoming a prime minister with a known and, uh, and clear support for the Palestinian rights. They are terrified by it. And they are doing everything possible to target him by accusing him of anti-Semitism, which is not easy because he's not anti-Semitic at all. And uh, at first it looked as if it works. At the beginning we thought it was working. And then we strategized against it exactly by the way I'm, I'm talking about. We, we asked people to give us the space and to deal with the historical context and not with the moment, not with the picture of Jeremy Corbyn in Tunis in 1993, but with the history of the PLO as a resistance movement. And slowly we found out that this is something the Israelis did not want to be involved in. They don't like debates of history because history is on the side of the Palestinians in this story, not the Israelis. And, and, and therefore, it will be a struggle. It won't be an easy struggle, but I think you... It, I, I keep saying it to my legal friends. You need the historians, surprisingly, for this. Uh, you need us. You need the historical context. The whole rep report on Israel, the whole coverage of Israel in this country is totally dehistoricized. I'm not talking about taking it back 2,000 years ago. I'm talking about what happened in the last 200 years. And I think we need to rehistoricize it as much as to humanize it. Uh, I, I don't think it would be easy, but I think it is still uh, uh, possible. I would just tell you one anecdote, um, which is also typical to the way we try to dialogue with the Israeli Jewish society. I go once a year to the March of Return inside Israel, where we march into one of the destroyed Palestinian villages. And where it always takes place when Israeli Jews celebrate their day of independence. And they celebrate the Day of Independence in parks 
recreational parks built on the ruins of Palestinian villages. So we clash. The Israelis who celebrate independence and we and the Palestinians and the Israelis who support them who commemorate the village that was destroyed. And when we leave, we, we meet each other at the, at the crossroad. And the re- people recognize me. And they open the window and after kind of blessing uh, of, of the cursing kind, uh, they, they say to me, how can you do this? And I always answer, do you have time? It's a very good question. If you have time, an hour and a half, I will explain to you why I do that. And of course, unfortunately, most of them don't want an hour and a half. But those who do are very confused after that. If we can get the space in America and elsewhere to fight these soundbites allegation with a profound analysis in a society and culture that is not easily uh, uh, agreeable to profound analyses without... (laughs) without uh, uh, um, kind of condemning anyone here, um, I think we should, we should strive to do this as much as we can. Yeah. In a couple words, um, what gives me hope is the young people I see out there organizing across movements and, um, and speaking out despite the repression. And the Michelle Alexander op-ed in the New York Times the other day. Absolutely. Rashida Tlaib in, in Congress. What, what gives you hope that we can come to a just First of all, uh, as an historian, I, I know that evil regimes and injustices do not stay forever. There is an end. There was an end to the Pinochet regime. There was an end to apartheid in South Africa. There was an end to uh, racism and apartheid official one at least in south southern United States, I think that the evil kind of brutality that I described in this lecture and in the book is something that more and more people are aware of. And I think people eventually will take a stance, including the Jewish communities around the world, especially the young Jews around the world. And, and, and one of the major things that gives me hope is even the young Christians in this country, even among fundamentalists who send their kids to Israel with the, with the idea that they create another Christian Zionist kind of cadre, find it very difficult to explain to, this, to those kids what the kind of cognitive dissonance that they have of what they've been told and what they see on the ground. In this age in time, you cannot hide the reality anymore. It's there. It's transparent. And I'm a believer in humanity. I believe in humanity. And and I think that uh, it would be very difficult to dismantle the kind of structure of fabrication I talked about that Israel has built. And it would be very difficult to decolonize uh, Israel and Palestine. But the fact that it is difficult should not dissuade us. And what gives me also hope is that I think we wasted 50 years since 67 talking about the wrong solution, talking the wrong language about this story. And I think we're beginning to talk about the right solution now, and we are employing the right dictionary now. And we're just beginning. We're just beginning. And I don't think we should allow ourselves to be hopeless, without hope, uh, uh, just because we started a new road which we should have undertaken many, many years ago. But it's better late than never.
we could keep talking for an hour, but um, but um, uh, thank you all for coming. It was really a pleasure, and thank you, Ilan. Thank you, thank thank you, you to the Lennon Foundation. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a Lannan podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts at podcast.lannan.org. In addition, the Lannan Audio Archives present similar programs by national and international writers, poets, and social activists at www.lannan.org. Listen to hundreds of hours of recorded programs from the likes of Seamus Haney, Joy Harjo, Eduardo Galliano, Arundhati Roy, Jim Harrison, Edwidge Danticott, and Noam Chomsky. New programs are added every month to both the podcasts and the audio archives.